A Moment from My Garden This Week It was the dusk of a sweltering day, 95 degrees just an hour before. I crouched at the edge of the path behind my barn, pinching off a handful of tender tips of chocolate mint to crush between my palms for a mojito. Raising my head from the ground, I saw that the heat had opened the buds of a patch of chives into an intense purple, close to the color, though nothing was exact, of the lilac blossoms twenty feet beyond them. Soon, I hoped, the air would be cooler. Welcome to A Garden in Crisis, a podcast about the ways that gardening can help us to get through difficult times. There are many how-to gardening resources out there, but here we're talking more about why to garden and what it's like when you do. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm a gardener and a researcher who likes to poke around in the more fertile corners of life. This week, will consider the quality of time in the garden. What does it mean to spend time in a garden? Christine Locker is an author and coach who lives in London, where housing is expensive and space is tight. When we had a conversation this winter, she described the riddle of her life. She grows many plants in her apartment, but says that she doesn't have a garden anymore. So at the moment, I don't have a garden. I also don't even have a balcony where I'm currently living, and I'm actually missing it a lot. I didn't think I would miss it as much as I actually do. I'm quite close to nature in where I'm living, so I thought... When I moved here, oh, it's fine. You know, I'm three minutes away from the river and it's really, really awesome. And that'll that'll be almost more important. And I've come to realize that I, I miss the participation. So I miss having at least a balcony with a few boxes and buckets and where I can just play around trying to grow stuff. Now, in the past, when I was able to do that, I'm I'm really not a good gardener. So I'm quite happy I don't need to feed myself because I think that would be a proper disaster. But it's something I really, really enjoy. And I have probably, if if you're thinking plants per square meter, my my little flat is is really, really full of plants because that seems to be, um, but they're sort of indoor house plants. So I don't, you know, I don't grow tomatoes. I don't grow potatoes. I grow kitchen herbs and quite a lot of them but less sort of, you know, useful things that I would actually eat. And I I miss that a little bit. What makes a garden? Does it require a plot of land? That's increasingly difficult to come by for many people. Christine doesn't even have a balcony on which to capture the rays of the sun. Nonetheless, she's growing many plants in her apartment. That process of growing plants is at the heart of what it means to garden. And the fact that it's a process is a big part of what gardening is about. A garden 
is not something that you can simply create and then be done with it. Growth takes time and you can't just, I think that's also one of the downsides of the machine metaphor where you think you can just assemble all the right building blocks with no time in between at all. If you can assemble them faster, they're, they're done faster or they're finished faster. And also with the garden, that's not the case. So a plant takes as long as it takes to grow and it doesn't grow faster if you up the quarterly goals or if you start pulling at it or if you, I don't know, set things to twice the amount of heat, it's not growing twice as fast. That's, that's just really not how it works. And I think we can learn from that because I think there are limits to how much we can fiddle around with the circumstances and sometimes we just need to accept that things take as long as they take if you want the right outcome. A garden isn't made. It grows over time, and there's no way to rush to the end of the process. Plants are complex systems that have adapted themselves to the long rhythms of the natural world. They move, but very little and very slowly. The plant's pace of life provides an antidote to the always accelerating pace of the digital industrial culture that we humans feel compelled to follow. Christine suggests that we try to learn from the plants that we grow, a lesson of acceptance of the things that we cannot control. Gardens force us into an experience of time in between that is alien to machine-centered urban environments that most people live in now. Time is the dimension that distinguishes gardens from most other forms of art. Benjamin Vogt, a garden designer in Nebraska and author of A New Garden Ethic, explains how he doesn't just arrange his plantings in the available space he sees before him, in the moment of planting. Because a garden is a living system, it changes and so requires a vision capable of anticipating long periods of time. When I'm designing gardens, I'm trying to keep the grass component probably 40 to 50 percent of, of the total biomass because over time, you know, five to ten years, the grass is, is going to slowly take over, which is great if you have a site that's prone to weeds or, or, or erosion. Um, but that just means your management has to change a little bit so you can you know, encourage forbs to develop along in there with the grasses. Well, it's something I think about all the time uh, with research that I do and, and articles that I write. I'm thinking, you know, if I, as, when I think of myself as a garden designer, I think how can these landscapes I'm designing be resilient five, 10, even 20 years down the road? And obviously it's impossible for us to, to accurately predict what the climate's going to be like. We just know it's going to be a lot more messed up. There's going to be a lot more extremes in, in rainfall. And we're already seeing those extremes in rainfall and, and heat right now. We've we had an incredibly wet spring and then it was an incredibly dry fall, which is sort of backwards in a way. But so when, when I'm using native plants, I'm thinking, well, these, these plants are really the most adapted and adaptable plants that I could have here in this region. They're, they're used to when it's a bad year, they're used to shutting down, not flowering, going dormant like a lot of our prairie grasses, and they'll, and they'll come back 
next year and, and do their thing when hopefully the moisture comes back. Benjamin identifies a new kind of challenge in garden design. Gardeners used to be familiar with the rhythms of life. They would know the kinds of weather that could be expected in different seasons and plan accordingly. With perennial plantings and orchards, they could anticipate how communities of plants would develop over many years. With global climate change, however, traditional models of garden planning no longer work. It isn't just that the climate is becoming increasingly hotter. Weather has become more erratic, and extreme events that were once rare have become commonplace. The most predictable aspect of gardening has become its unpredictability. And it isn't just the temperature that climate change has disturbed. Climate change has warped our sense of time as well, as the natural clocks around us run at varying speeds that often don't match up. This spring, the leaves of the daylilies in my garden grew quickly in an unusual heat wave in early March, covering over the crocus that traditionally would emerge long before this competition. Then, cold weather returned until the beginning of May, bringing the growth of the lilies to a near standstill for weeks, even bending them low under the weight of a couple inches of snow now and then, though the lily's leaves had already grown over half a foot tall. In response to this kind of uncertainty, Benjamin has learned to design with resilience in mind. He selects adaptable plants that are native to the region he's working in. These plants won't easily be killed, even during times of unseasonable weather, as they have the ability to hunker down, going dormant until conditions for growth become favorable again. Jess Walton of Green America has also noticed shifts in the gardening calendar, but she came of age as a gardener in the harsh, short-growing season of Colorado. So I tend to garden in Colorado only because we we still get frosts and, and snow and whatnot here. Um, it's pretty mild, but um, it's tough to garden outside. So um, I garden in Colorado, but our growing season in Colorado is very short. Um, so I'm actually just this week starting here while I'm in Arizona. I'm starting um, seeds and peppers and um, peppers and tomatoes and the things that kind of take longer and I'll plant those out. Um, but our last frost in Colorado is around like June 5th or so. So it's really a short season. That is changing. It is really interesting to look at the historical data and we always tend to get like we'll still get a random freeze in or a, not even a freeze, but a full snowstorm in like mid to late May. It used to be that we would get snow or kind of consistent 
uh, winter weather through May, but now it's like you think that it's spring finally, and then April comes around, and you're like, I think I can plant outside, and it still will snow once in May. So people still, even though it is getting warmer earlier, we know to either have, you know, stuff covered or in a greenhouse or whatever we can to, um, we really are checking the weather channel a lot because um, the, uh, yeah, the, you're quite often losing crops in, in late May if you get too ambitious. <laughs> Gardeners tend to focus our concentration on the present moment. Nonetheless, Jess advises new gardeners to learn to anticipate the dynamic needs of life in the garden, not just in the present, but as it is likely to develop in the future. I think it's just an example of how a lot of people are really focused on the now and not the tomorrows and and how now it might be a, a caterpillar eating your the leaves of your plants but tomorrow it could be this beautiful insect that's also actually really important to our world as a pollinator so I think this just brings to mind how everything, we're a part of an ecosystem right and any thread we pull and any changes we make has other consequences in other parts of the ecosystem. So if we have plants that need pollination and yet we are using products or activities or methods that are killing or keeping away the pollinators from our garden, we will, we will notice that <laughs> very, very um, painfully really because we might think we're doing the right thing for our garden by protecting it and killing these insects, but ultimately they have a place there and they have a role in the ecosystem. And even if we're not entirely clear on what that role might be, it, it exists and it, it's just something that I always encourage folks to do more research on or, you know, if there is a specific insect or plant, try to see like what is its use in your garden and where does it fit in your, your ecosystem, your hyper-local on-property ecosystem. A garden, as Jess sees it, is a reminder to take the broad view when considering the challenges of the moment. Climate change may disrupt the garden calendar, but if we look at our gardens as integrated ecosystems rather than as collections of isolated plants, we can put our losses in perspective. A garden is not an eternal paradise. It's filled with death and renewal. What presents itself in the guise of a pest now may play a beneficial role in the garden a month from now. The death or diminishment of one plant may make room for another plant that's ready to occupy a new role in the succession of the garden toward a more mature, sustainable pattern. Nothing lasts forever. The importance of succession of communities of plants over time is emphasized by Larry Weiner, natural garden designer and author of Garden Revolution. I would say one of the key ecological processes to understand is the idea of succession changing plant compositions over time, and I can relate it to a meadow. If you plant a meadow from seed, you will likely have a sea of black-eyed Susan. In this first year, you'll have small seedlings, no flowers. Second year, you'll have an example of a plant that will show up and bloom, possibly profusely, would be black-eyed Susan. And if you came back the third year and looked at it at the same time of year in the same place, it would be the black-eyed Susan would probably have diminished by 95 percent 
and some of the perennial species would start to be the ones that are flowering. What's going on there is black-eyed Susan, Rebecca herda, the wild one in the field, not the cultivars, you know, in gardens, because they are perennial, is a biennial. So it's going to grow the first year leaves, second year flowers, third year it's dead. The seeds all over the place because it produced millions of seeds the first year. But unlike when the thing was planted, there's no open ground anymore. Now the ground is covered. So seed germination is dropping way down. And that's the only way that plant can persist in the landscape. So the point here is um, in more recent years, the meadow in a can that was put out uh, as a product to, available to landscape folks was composed mostly of annuals and short-lived plants. So they did what Black-Eyed Susan does and flowered very early. Most of them were annuals. They might have been the first year. But then they dropped out and the weeds took over because there was no competition long-term to prevent them. But you can make the same mistake going the other way and saying, I'm only going to use long-lived perennial natives that are adapted to my site. They should be in there. But if that's all there is, long-lived plants tend to be slow-growing. So in the three, four, five years that it took takes that plant to form a cover and be uh, a, a dense, have a dense presence, a dense weed suppressive presence in the landscape, you got nothing because you didn't include the short-lived plants that would have stabilized things from the very beginning. So the idea here is when you're putting together a seed mix, you're picking species that will dominate early stage and then ones that'll take over that are kind of mid-stage plants. And then the ones in year five, six, seven, that will take over as really the plants that lived for hundreds of years in the prairie and it can go on indefinitely. You're planting them all the same day, but you are watching them unfold at different rates, kind of like a relay over time. And uh, that's, that's, you're designing it that way. You're designing in four dimensions, not only to fill up a space, but to fill up a time continuum. Planting a garden is not like painting a canvas. We can't just dig in flowers and shrubs in the places we'd like them to be. Stand back and look at our design with satisfaction. We need to see how the plants will grow and spread, interacting with each other and creating new conditions as they do so. A garden won't remain static. It's alive and will always surprise us if we're paying attention. Gardens are ephemeral, teaching us that change is inevitable. The COVID-19 pandemic has surprised us too, of course. It's knocked us off balance, forcing us to abandon all the predictions that we made for the year back in January. Fanula Collins, who gardens in Ireland, found that the stunning break with normality triggered by the coronavirus crisis, has led her to reevaluate her priorities and turn her attention back to working the land. We're kind of a bit stunned, I think, same as everywhere, at how fast it seems to have entered our lives and taken over and just thrust this new reality in front of us that we have to deal with. So I think in Ireland, our numbers are kind of climbing slowly. And I think that really it's making everyone reevaluate. What are we doing here? All of a sudden, it's, uh, it's just become so obvious that there are very, very fragile threads that connect us all and how easily they're broken. 
I've um, moved here uh, in 2006 with my partner and our three daughters. And the eldest is 19 and she's about to do her exams. The youngest is 11 and she's just having a jujitsu Skype lesson there. And the middle one is 16. So we've been going back into what we came here for, I suppose, initially was to reconnect with nature and to maybe live a simpler life and on the land. And then I think like a lot of people, you end up being sort of sucked into uh, that money world and having to work and having to pay for things and having to bring children to different activities, which constantly separate from what you think you, you, you really want to be doing and should be doing. So this last few weeks, we've been planting seeds and potatoes and tending to the trees and, you know, putting lettuces in and preparing really for possibly um, having to think more about where our food comes from and trying to get that food as close to the source as possible. Fanula's turn back to lettuce and potatoes has brought with it a turn back into a different kind of time. Time in the garden for her is slower than the ordinary pace of life. For Fanula, Humanity's abusive relationship with the natural environment is as destructive for us as it is for nature. I think it's probably useful to try and take something positive from it, that if we can learn to maybe listen more to nature and listen to where we are and what we've done and how we can get back to a sense of wholeness and a sense of breathing uh, in a slower rhythm, and in rhythm with nature and I think one of the things about seeing all of the cities going really quiet all over the world is it gives us a chance to stop and pause and really think do we want to go back to that normal do we want to go back to that fast pace and that racing and that running around and that achieving and being productive and burning all of that oil and uh, letting off all of that kind of carbon and that anger and really living in an abusive relationship with our environment. And I, I think a lot of us don't. I think this has shown us that it's maybe time to think we can do better. We can live slower. We can take less. We can care more about what happens to the vulnerable. As we move forward into the next stage of the global social crisis provoked by the coronavirus pandemic, many people are reacting against months of quarantine with the strident push to return to the way things used to be. Not Fanula. Fanula is turning toward the crisis to learn what it has to teach us about our relationship with time. That's why she's returning to her garden, to enter a contemplative phase, a pause. Anne Snellgrove is returning to her garden as well, in the town of Stroud in England. Stroud is a, um, an old cloth town. It's in the Cotswolds, so it's, um, but it's what we call the working Cotswolds. 
they're um, uh, not the kind of pretty villages as you get in Bybury and the North Cotswolds. Um, but they made cloth here for years or for, for centuries. And um, our house is an old weaver's cottage, which is um, lovely. <laughs> During her time in quarantine, Anne has discovered a different way to invest her time, metaphorically expressing trust in the future by planting a seed. You can't control everything. You can't control the whole of nature. But it does bounce back, the garden. And that's what I love as well about it as well. It's about optimism and the future. And you put a seed in now, in six months' time, you're going to see a flower or a fruit or a vegetable. And that's a miracle. That's absolutely brilliant. These days, we have to believe in the future. And, but it's also not just about the future, but it's about living in the moment. Because, um, again, I think, if you think dwell too much on what's happening with coronavirus, that's very depressing. And I know quite a few people who I've been in touch with online or read about on Twitter who, who are obviously terrified. And I think we all need stuff to take us out of that fear of the future and to live in the moment. The problem for me has been um, up to this year that I haven't had enough time to do my garden and that I've been coming home very tired from work uh, and then feeling that I need to do other things you know and, and all those things have been stripped away so it's, um, it's fantastic to have that time and I think the luxury of, of time is something we've all forgotten about. The rhythm of the day has changed and that is really wonderful and I hope that for me that I won't go back to madly thinking about things I've got to do and being upset that I haven't been able to do them at that very moment that I'll take a more relaxed and leisurely view of what I've got to do so so I think the garden's given me that Anne shows us the power of planting a seed in a time of crisis a seed is a kind of time machine taking us forward from a time of want to a time of plenty. A seed contains the idea that everything that we need is already here, and all we need is the patience to wait for it to come to fruition. Gardens help us in times of crisis by providing us with food and with places of calm amidst the chaos. More than that, though, gardens give us perspective. They're dynamic, living character reminds us that the way things are now is not the way that things will always be. There will be death, but there will also be renewal. What comes next might not be the same as what came before, but life will go on. We will get through the sickness, the isolation, the economic depression, and the psychological disorientation sparked by COVID-19. You never know. We might even grow. It doesn't have to be a large garden. It doesn't need to be elegant. Every bit of green space helps. You can register your garden on the Climate Victory Garden map provided by Green America and reach across the social distance to find out who else is gardening near you. Another episode of A Garden in Crisis 
comes next week. Take some time in the shade. Until then. You can find a transcript of this episode and other episodes as they come at agardenincrisis.com. The music at the opening and closing of each episode is by Jason Shaw from the album Audionautics. <laughs>